Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for days like this that you've ordained for our edification, Father, for building us up, for restoring us, for rejuvenating us, Father. It's tough out there nowadays in so many ways that having a place like this, a place of rest and peace, so very welcomed and we're just so thankful for it. We know that it's by your grace alone, motivated by your love, that times like this exist for us to rejoice in. We pray for those that can't be here, members of this congregation that would like to be here but can't. For a variety of reasons, Father, we just pray for them. We pray also for those in this world that are still lost without hope. We are most grateful and thankful for the work your son accomplished on a cross 2,000 years ago to make times like this times to rejoice in realities for us to embrace. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Part 6 of The Other Side of Grace. On Sunday and Thursday, though, we had a wonderful reminder of why we have the God-given right to celebrate the Lord's resurrection the way we do. And it turns out that according to Holy Scripture... Christ's resurrection from the dead is the very linchpin of our faith. For without it, according to Holy Scripture, we are to be pitied most of all. Without it, our faith would be in vain. Without it, God's a liar. But, With Christ's resurrection, our faith, our hope, and our love are secured. For we are truly saved. The salvation that we cling to is eternal, delivering us from any thoughts that we are to hope in this life only. And so there's that whole idea of transcendence. Everything we think we are in Christ depends on the veracity, the truth of Christ's resurrection. And since God is not a liar, and the fact is that Christ really did rise from the dead as a historical truth, then our celebration last Sunday, and frankly, every day is justified. And that's the beauty of Christ's resurrection, that it was for our justification to make all that we are in Christ Jesus real, eternal, transcendent, something we can base everything we are on. It seems like everything else in the world is shifty, right? 
and that and I use that word shifty on purpose because there's a negative connotation. Everything's shifty. You know, you, you think you got the pulse on something, and the next day it's different. You think you got something squared away, and the next week it's changed. And that's the way the world keeps us sort of on that treadmill. But with God, um, we're solid. His truth is immutable, immovable, absolute. And so we cling to it while the rest of the world is everywhere, like ships at sea. Much of what uh, we've been taught recently is echoed in this week's blog up here on the board. Hopefully you read it. The sphere of God. The sphere of God. Now on that note, we've been given five parts so far. This is part six, of course, of the other side of grace, which has been truly edifying. If you recall, the series kicked off with a friendly reminder that nothing is guaranteed in this life. That isn't stated as guaranteed in Holy Scripture. There are guarantees in Holy Scripture. But unless it's actually guaranteed in Holy Scripture, it's not guaranteed. So here are some guarantees that you can hang your hat on up here on the board. Well, one, God loves you. Salvation is eternal. In other words, once saved, always saved. That's the doctrine, if you would, of eternal security. That's guaranteed. It's guaranteed that Christ rose from the dead, that we are baptized into union with him, with his death and resurrection. And it's guaranteed that believers are fundamentally changed at salvation. We are new creatures. We are, as Christ said to Nicodemus, we are born again. That is a fundamental change. Right? Those are things we can hang our hats on because those things are actually clearly stated doctrines in Holy Scripture. And so the Bible does have guarantees. So these are all facts that are clearly stated in the Bible. Now here's a list of things that are not guaranteed up here in the board. Things that are not guaranteed. Your lifestyle. Earthly blessings. Not, there's no guarantee. Where does it say in the Bible that you're guaranteed the lifestyle that you live right now? It's not. There's no guarantee that others will love you or even like you. <laughs> there's no guarantee of that. So stop striving for it. Stop acting like you know, you care. Like, you shouldn't even care. The only person's opinion that matters is Christ. You follow? Really. And if someone's acting on behalf of Christ, like myself, then I guess in that sense, my opinion matters as well. Because I have to pass judgment, whatever. But you get the point. There's no guarantee that others are going to love you or even like you. So put that away. There's no guarantee that your good health will persist. I was just talking to someone this morning. I'm so grateful. Every day, um, Tom and I were talking about this out in the hall as well. Like, he's got bad knees, 
I've got bad knees, bad this, bad that. Who cares? I'm standing here, right? There are some 51-year-old people that they can't stand anymore, or they were born crippled. I'm not saying there's no pity. You know what I'm getting at, right? This is like, or they're in pain all the time. Or they've got a lung disease, or a, they've got cancer, or they've got, I don't know, whatever you pick. There's no guarantee that your health is going to persist the way you know it. There's no guarantee of this church or pastor even. That's how this whole thing started, if you remember. There's just no guarantee. So that's how our mini-series uh, actually began. It began as a survey of things not to become familiar with or take for granted. Because nothing is guaranteed that isn't guaranteed in the Bible. Nothing is guaranteed that isn't guaranteed in the Bible. As we've been learning, God can and does take blessings away. We looked at Jonah as an example to teach us lessons. Again, we've been learning that God can and does take away blessings to remind us that we ought to be grateful for our blessings for as long as we have them. Is that worthy of an amen? Right? For as long as we have them, instead of being, oh, I used to have it, now it's gone, wah. You know, I have something to be, I have something to be angry about, just let me die. That was Jonah, right? Just let me die. You know? People used to love me. I used to be liked. Now nobody can stand me. Try being a pastor. I had old, old friends berate me publicly on social media. That's why I don't go on there anymore anyways, but long story short. And I said, okay. Okay. You know, because you're not supposed to be. I mean, Jesus Christ said, the world's going to hate you because you love me. Because it hated me first. Okay. There's no guarantee, man. Like, there's no guarantee. So we ought to be grateful for our blessings for as long as we have them. That's a completely different mindset. When you look back, instead of mourning over the loss of a blessing, all it takes a little change of perspective, it was great when it was there. You see, there's a vast difference. One is misery, one is joy. Same situation. Go to Job 1.1. Job 1, verse 1. Things come and go. That's what Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, right? There's a time for everything. Time to plant, time to uproot what was planted. Time to be born, time to die. Job 1.1 We do crazy things when we don't like God's judgment. Oh! Oh, so you're going to take that away from me, Lord. Well, let me just take what you took away from me from the world then. Let me go search out on my own then. Since you're not going to cover me, Lord, and I'm bitter and miserable and resentful, I'm going to go 
take it from the world. From that disgusting creature, Satan. Yeah. Let's read Job. See what Job has to say. Job 1.1 There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Okay? This is not Job saying he was blameless and upright. This is God. This is God saying this guy was blameless and upright, one who feared God, turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, <clears throat> quote, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered to the Lord and said, From going to and fro and on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. You see how Satan's thinking, right? Satan's thinking exactly like the person I described, the miserable one. The one who's on a different system of thinking. The one who says, you know, you, you know, God, this is why. You gave him so much, of course he's happy and content and serving you. Of course he's doing it, because he's blessed, you know. Take it away. And <laughs> so he said in verse 11, But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him. Do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was speaking, as if that wasn't enough, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, 
there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Okay, so that's that old saying, when it rains, it pours, right? Like no let up. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And look what he said. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. God called Job blameless and upright. And what, pray tell, do we see from this man specifically when put to the test? What do we see? Now, this is where you need to take pause. And I mean you, not, hey, let's look at Job alone. I mean you. This lesson, this message is about you, not Job. Job is just an illustration. You have to ask yourself, right out of the gate, in all humility and transparency before God, you have to confess, say the same thing. What is your attitude about the blessings God has given you in time? In other words, would, would Satan be right about you? What is your attitude? So here's a bold-faced question. When I say it's literally bolded in my own notes. Are these blessings yours to demand or are they God's to give? Are they yours to demand or are they God's to give? I think this line gets blurred all too often, especially with, let's call, immature or maybe uneducated or maybe even arrogant Christians. Um, Hold your thumb there. Let's allow the Bible to answer that question for us. Go to uh, Psalm 50, verse 10. Psalm 50, verse 10. These blessings, are they yours to demand? Or are they God's to give? In other words, are you on a, a works program? Are you that type of person who says, well, I too am blameless and upright, therefore I demand what I got coming to me? Psalm 50, verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all, this is God speaking, right, of course. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of what? Thanksgiving. 
thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. There's your attitude. There's the answer to the question. Are your blessings yours to demand or are they God's to give? So the answer to the question is that since all things belong to God, they are God's to give as he wills. Right? I mean, do you have a right to demand from me a hundred bucks just because you think you've earned it? Or can I, is it mine to give to you if I feel like it? But I did all this stuff, so I, I don't have any contract with you, right? Unless I told you that I would give you if you did this or that. We have no contract. There's no demand you can place on me. If I feel like giving you 100 bucks, maybe I will. I don't know. If I feel like it. But you can't demand that from me. I always get a kick out of unbelievers who try to use the Bible. Well, you have to be this way because the Bible says so. You know, they don't know what they're talking about. And they make these, like, demands. And it's like, no, 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 no. I can do that if I want, if it's appropriate. But you don't get to demand that from me. Again, the answer to the question... Are your blessings yours to demand, or are they God's to give? Well, the answer is they're God's to give, up here on the board. So here's our first key perspective this morning on self-induced misery. Because if you get that wrong, if you get that question wrong, you will be miserable. You will be miserable. It's when we think we have the right to demand such things as permanent blessings that we place ourselves in bondage to poor expectations. It's when we think we have the right to demand such things as permanent blessings that we place ourselves in bondage to poor expectations. So, to help deliver us from any poor expectations we might have, we can reflect on Job's sentiments. Go back to Job 1.21. Job 1.21, what did he say? Very simply, after he lost everything, worst day in history, right? <laughs> he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So, Job personified the attitude that God the Holy Spirit has been trying to instill in all of us as of late. He personifies it. That is, he understood implicitly that God's will is what matters. God's will is what matters. God's will is what matters. So, time to reflect on this. Um, let me ask you a very simple question. Now, this is directed at every single person in here, every individual. I want to think about this. What are the top three 
most important things in your life and outside of your relationship with God, strictly speaking, what are the top three most important things in your life? Outside of your relationship with God, strictly speaking. Okay? So take a moment and let them, let the very first things, now be honest, let the very first things that came to your mind, be honest, be honest to them. Say, well, it was this. Whether I, you know, whether it was the right thing to say, don't worry about all that. Just what, it, what were they? What were the top three things that came to your mind? What's the most important three things in your life? Okay, now, how many of them could be taken away from you this very day? Honestly, how many of them could be taken away from you this very day? Some of you would say, well, my kids. It's my kids. Or my spouse. Or my grandkids. Or my cat. Or my dog. Whatever. What happened to Job's family? All the, his business, everything. What happened to Job's family and everything else? God allowed Satan to destroy them. And Job never blamed God. Never took it up the wrong way with God. Did he enjoy the experience of being pummeled like that? Of course not. He tore his robes, remember? But he never cursed God the way, for example, his wife said he should have. Go to Job 2.9. Job 2, verse 9. Then his wife said to him, I mean, could it get any worse? I mean, he just lost everything. Right? In, this, in a moment of need, if there ever was a need in human history for support from a wife, this might be arguably one of those cases. And what did she say? Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. What did Job say even then? Right? It's like the last nerve that could possibly be plucked. Well, at least my wife's here. And she says, curse God and die. And challenges who I am, my integrity. And even then, what does he do? He says, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So let this be a, another lesson on top for all you married people out there. There's no guarantee that the blessing God gave you in the form of a spouse is going to be steadfast in their own faith. In fact, when they fail, they will not be your friend in that moment. Job's wife was definitely not being Job's friend in that moment. 
Not even close. All right, back to the instigating point of all this. What do you do when your faith is put to the test? What do you do when your faith is put to the test? Do you pout like most people seem to do? Or do you say, as Job said, thank you, Lord, for the time that you've given this blessing to me? Thank you for whatever time this blessing existed in my life. All I can tell you is that your peace, your happiness, your contentment, they depend on this very thing up here on the board. Self-induced misery. It's when we think we have the right to demand such things as permanent blessings that we place ourselves in bondage to poor expectations. In other words, to tie it back to the main theme, the other side of grace, um, up here on the board, your joy is intrinsic to your abiding in the sphere of God's love. Take a moment to let that sink in. The sphere of it. Not just the receiving of blessings, but also the giving. In other words, all right, this is, this is the theme. This is why I keep doing this a lot, because it's a good visual. If you're over here, all you think about is the receiving. If you turn your back and you're thinking about giving, you just know your eyes aren't even on the receiving part anymore, are they? No, because your eyes are over here, right? And instead of being focused on how much you're getting or what's being now taken away, you're just focused on living for others, on giving grace. And now your eyes are not on that thing anymore. And now you're free and blessed. Focus on this for too long, you're miserable, because all you start thinking about, you're like the greedy little hoarder that's like, what have you done for me lately? And, oh, mama, mama, don't take that away. No, 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 no. That's mine. You gave it. You can't take it back. I demand that it remains mine. That is literally how you end up miserable in life. And that's why... The Bible tells us to turn around, to become givers. Your joy is intrinsic to your abiding in the sphere of God's love, which is tantamount to saying His grace, the sphere of His grace, sphere of God in general. So, if your focus is on receiving grace only, your joy, then, is greatly stunted. However, if you understand the whole of grace, your joy is made full. This is what we've noted over and over again from the very lips of Jesus Christ. If you love, in other words, obey His command to do so, you share in His joy. Your joy is, as the Bible says, is made full. That's what we learn in John 15. Jesus says, I command you to love so that your joy may be full. Since God desires for you, his child, to have this joy, 
He commands you to abide in his love because it's within that sphere that this joy exists. And when all you're focusing on is gimme, 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 you have removed yourself from the sphere of it. If you're just a selfish lover, gimme, gimme, gimme. I'll love God for as long as I can see that he gives me stuff and therefore I can see that he loves me. And all I'm ever going to focus on are these blessings, these temporal blessings nonetheless. Um, you've missed the point. You've ejected yourself from the sphere of God, which is the only place where this joy is made full. That's the perversion. And that's what the Spirit's trying to get out of us. He's trying to root it out of us. He's saying, let's go deep. Because some of you said, oh, definitely, it's my kids, my spouse, my cat, my dog. It's something, my house, my job, my whatever, my reputation. And he's like, you need to throw all that stuff in the garbage can, that thinking. Because none of those things are guaranteed as permanent. And he's saying, I want you to get to a point where you could lose every last one of them. And you would still have Job's attitude. The Lord gives and the Lord takes it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So this, what's being described this morning, this is how we live righteously before God. How we, you know, do his will. As James would say up here on the board, James 1.22 in the Amplified. But prove yourselves doers of the word, actively and continually obeying God's precepts. And not merely listeners who hear the word but fail to internalize its meaning. Deluding yourselves by unsound reasoning contrary to the truth. In other words, don't be delusional because you'll end up miserable. Be a doer of the word. Again, this is how we live righteously before God. We do his will. Stated differently, to live righteously is to accept the life he's given you. To live righteously is to accept the life he's given you. The path, so to speak. Go to Psalm 16, 11. Psalm 16, verse 11. To live righteously is to accept the life he's given you. Not the one that you imagined when you were a child, when you were playing dolls, or king of the mountain, or whatever it was you were doing when you were a kid that involved a picket fence and a little house and two and a half children and a cat and a dog and a job and a, you know, a, a blue Prius and a whatever. You follow what I'm getting at? Like that whole vision that you had? Throw that in the garbage. Because that's just going to result in a miss. You follow? It's going to be a miss. And because you had poor expectations, it's going to cause a root of um, misery to sprout in you. And you won't be able to get rid of it because it'll just remain until that perspective is gone. Until that expectation is blown up. So to live righteously is to accept the life he's given you. The path, so to speak, Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. That's what's going on this morning. He's trying to talk to you. You understand? He's, trying to, he's reaching out to your soul 
And he's saying, look, I'm trying to help. I'm trying to make it easy for you. I'm trying to make my joy part of your joy, to make my joy your joy. I want you to love the way I love because that's where all the freedom is. Not this. This. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, that's another way to say where righteousness is, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So this is what David was getting at when he wrote this psalm. And we learn from David because wisdom is universal and timeless. Remember? Wisdom is universal and timeless. What we just read is, that's not new doctrine. That's not anything new. Concentrate. Up here on the board. Our joy made full. God never says that we are to de derive our joy from temporal blessings. That is a worldly trap. Our joy is transcendent. Colossians 3, 1 to 10. Again, God never says that we are to derive our joy from temporal blessings. That is a worldly trap. Our joy is transcendent. Go to Colossians 3, 1. Can you enjoy your children? I hope so. <laughs> Right? Can you enjoy your job, your good relationships? I hope so. That's not the point, though. If they are gone tomorrow, you should not self-destruct. Colossians 3.1. You should say, that was awesome when I had it. Colossians 3.1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Verse 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, that's a reference to the baptism into union with Him. Verse 4, Colossians 3, 4, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Whew. So, let's try to pull some of this together now, synthesizing the key points on the table so far. First, he said, blessings are not guaranteed. Blessings are not guaranteed. They are, in fact, God's to give and take away. How do you handle God's decisions to remove temporal blessings? How do you... I mean, in, in the most fundamental way, 
This is going to sound strange, but I could say in the same breath and have equal weight, how do you feel about or how do you handle God's decisions to not just remove but to give temporal blessings? In other words, they should have equal weight. You should feel the same way about God's giving or taking. It should be a transcendent thought that, well, this is God's will. So if he took it away, it's got to be for the best. You may not understand it, but you don't understand everything. If he gives it, it must be for the best. It's for a reason. It's for a season. If he takes it away, it must be for the best because God is intrinsically good. Amen? So there you go. So you have to think about it that way. Right? It's not just a test. If you really want to think maturely about this, it's not just a test about how you react or respond or handle when he takes something away, but also how do you respond when he gives? In other words, slam those two together. What do you think about God's will? That's the big question. It's not about giving or taking. It's about what do you think about God's will? Up here on the board. Again, our joy is made full. God never says that we are to derive our joy from temporal blessings. That is a worldly trap. Our joy is transcendent. So when you mature to the point, spiritually, that your joy is divorced from temporal blessings, when you mature to the point spiritually that your joy is divorced from temporal blessings, then you are delivered from the self-induced prison that most Christians seem to live in. I, I would be willing to bet this Sunday morning there are people that are going to church right now because they're expecting an ROI. Do you know what ROI is? A return on investment. They're going to church as if they're putting in a little work and they expect a wage. Does that make sense? They're going to church to do something for God because God wants me to go to church with the expectation that when they pray to him for this thing over here, there's a, there's a credit to their account because they went to church and they get to cash in on that credit for the blessing that they want that they're demanding. Well, I went to church, so God, you owe me this blessing. I've been a good little doobie my whole life. You owe me this blessing. Do you follow what I'm getting at? That's misery. That is misery, because God's never going to let you put him on a treadmill. And when he says, I'm not giving you this thing, because your attitude's terrible. You ought not expect anything from me with that attitude. Because you're a double-souled, dipsukos person. You're going to get nothing from me. Now they're really miserable. Because God's not answering their prayers. But I've been a, but didn't I, but didn't I? I never knew you. But didn't I do this? Don't I have some chits with you, God? I don't work like that. My grace is unmerited. I give to who I want to give. You don't demand anything from me. You get it? 
A person who's on that system of thinking is miserable. Because they don't even, they don't even go to church. They don't even read their Bible with the right motivation. They read it with an expectation of some kind of a payout later on. You follow? So when you mature to the point spiritually that your joy is divorced from temporal blessings, then you are delivered from the self-induced prison that most Christians seem to live in. And it's the queerest thing to ponder because it's like someone having the key to their own prison cell and yet they're too blind to locate it. Does that make sense? They have the key to their own prison cell, but they're too blind to locate it. As the Spirit's taught us over the years, spiritual sight exists in the sphere of righteousness. You want to see things clearly. You want to see it all as truth. You've got to be right. You've got to orient to God. You've got to exist in the sphere of righteousness your sight, your eyesight, your spiritual ability to see the truth, to find the key. It only exists in the sphere of righteousness. You making demands towards God for things that you think you've earned will never get you there. You will remain blind. And you will remain in that prison cell. That's what the Spirit's trying to deliver you from with messages like this. Because the world tells you every single day the opposite. The opposite. That's why, I don't know, did I ever mention like TVs are rough? Hey, I'm just trying to do you a favor. Very few things are good on that thing. That sewer pipe or that little smartphone or the internet, right? Just saying. The world is designed to, to flip-flop that thing. If we're spiraling out of control in our flesh, we are like we once were as unbelievers, blind. And so we remain in our own little prisons. Paul wrote about this in great detail more than once. For example, go to Ephesians 5, 6. Ephesians 5, verse 6. Yeah, Paul fought the good fight. Time and time again. Ephesians 5, verse 6. Ephesians 5, 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. All right, so all right, so some of you, I'm just going to throw this out there. Some of you have a love affair with the internet, or your television, or your smartphone. Some of you are best friends with those things. Does that make sense? With your iPad, with your computer, with your smartwatch. Some of you, that is your friend. And Satan loves it. Loves it. Because he's got 
literally a, 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 con- a, a connection with you. Right? It's on my wrist. If I'm not careful, this thing tethers me to a sewer pipe. The little smartphone, same thing, the iPad, the computer, the television. See what happens? Right? It's just a progression. Oh, what's your mood for today? You want it small? Do you want it big? Right? How do you want it? Served up on a platter. Boom. Your flesh is like, woo! It's exactly what I wanted. My friend. My place of comfort. I don't even come out. I don't come out of my room except for breakfast, dinner, and lunch, or lunch and dinner. How's that come? Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Right? I don't even. I just go in my room. I go on my computer. That's my friend. Right? I come out. I eat. I go back in. I go to work. I'm like a you know a drone. I come back. And I, I live this life of prison, this prison life, out to the yard, back. You follow? Why? Because you're tethered. You're friends with the world. And you say, well, why am I so miserable? Uh, literally, because you've become a partner with the world. Look at verse 7 again. Therefore, do not become partners with them. What did verse 5 say? Let no one deceive you with empty words. How empty are the words that come out of a television? Are they full? They're just full with righteousness, aren't they? They're just full with goodness, with God's viewpoint. It's just flowering God's viewpoint. Or just the opposite. What do you think? And and, and yet, here you are with your clicker. Yeah, give me more. I don't know why I'm miserable. Give me more. Why is God not blessing my socks off? Where are all these promises, God? I don't know, man. I mean, I'm just going to watch reruns of, I don't know, Magnum P.I. <laughs> right? And grow a mustache. Be like, he's got it going on. Look at him. He grew a mustache and he's got a Ferrari. And he solves cases. Look, verse 7, Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk. 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 Like this. Walk. Like actually don't be someone who deludes themselves. Be a doer of the word. Walk the walk of righteousness. God's showing you the path. Walk as children of light, verse 9, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Okay. What did I just do for you to help you? And some of you laughed at me. And some of you went, (laughs) a poo-poo. Right? Stop talking about my TV!
Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. That's for you. That's for you. Expose them. We are children of the holy, sovereign God of the universe. You ready? Here's an old... Every, I, I, every time I read this, so I wrote it, and of course I've reviewed my notes several times. And every time I read it, all I can hear is like parents from the 70s. Right? We are children of the holy, sovereign God of the universe. We ought to act like it. You're a member of this family. Act like it. Remember those days? You're my child. Act like it. Some people are like, but I am. I learned it from you, Dad, right? Anybody? No? 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 <laughs> Act like it. Why is that such a thing? Oh, you're being religious. No, I'm not. That's literally what the Bible says. Then act like it. You're a child of God. Walk. Act like it. Don't be a hero who deludes themselves playing games and then wallowing in your misery and then blaming God. Try being Job, who is blameless and upright. You're a mess. Right? Amen? Yeah. Act like it then. You want to be a part of this family? Act like it. I could say some of that. In a microcosm, I could say that some of you about this church. Act like it then. You want to be a member of this church? Act like it. Step up now and then. You get it? Stop acting like you just come and then that's it. Act like a member of the church. Act like you're a child of God. Act like you actually love Him the way you say you do. Act like it. Does that make sense? Okay, that was my parental rant for this morning. I mean, you're laughing, but you know what the Spirit's saying, right? I mean, He's not saying act like it because you're embarrassing me. He's saying act like it so your joy may be full. Does that make sense? Like, act like it. You might be shocked when you turn off the TV and pay attention to your kids. Or get off your phone. You ever been to a fast food restaurant lately? I almost can't go in anymore. Because I look around, I see all the tables. The mother's with the kid. The, the mother's on the smartphone. The kid's begging for one iota of attention. The mother's like, shut up. Eat your chicken fingers or your chicken nuggets. Right? What are you doing? You are a parent. What would he say? Act like it. That's what I feel like saying. I feel like rushing up to the table and going, You're a parent. Act like it. Probably get thrown out. Probably get uninvited from McDonald's from ever. You know, probably be on the news, jacked up. You know, because I offended some Karen. Right? It's unbelievable. You're the enemy. You're a white male. Anyways, I digress. <laughs> you don't get that, though, right? Like, act like it. You, you, uh, anyways, I'll repeat what I said earlier up here on the board. Transcendence. When you mature to the point spiritually that your joy is divorced from temporal blessings, then you are delivered from the self-induced prison that most Christians seem to live in. 
God wants you to be delivered. That's his will. Now, if that means he takes away a blessing or he gives it to help you along, that's his will. That's what you have to understand. Hence, all the commands to abide in his will. To our previous point up here on the board, your joy is intrinsic to your abiding in the sphere of God's love. That's the meaning of this message. It's not, you know, so we could have a few good laughs about how ridiculous we are or how defunct we are. It's about getting you to the right place so that you can have joy. We have to evaluate ourselves. We have to, you know, we have to assess ourselves and say, am I really acting or am I just a, you know, a blowhard? Do I just say all the right things, quote the right scripture? You know what I'm getting at, right? We can all play that game. Put it on cruise control, sit back and just sort of say the right things, right? Or am I walking the walk? Because your joy depends on it. Now, before we close, we've got to go back to where this message began this morning. Here was the question. When push comes to shove, how do you respond when your faith is put to the test? How do you respond when your faith is put to the test? That's why we read Job, right? And then another came, and then another, and then another. And oh, by the way, your kids are dead. Honey, what do you think? Curse God and die. What? How would you fare in your really small version of that? You know what I'm saying. How do you respond when your faith is put to the test? Let's just say that God decided to take your precious child from you this very day. If you don't have kids, your cat. If you don't have a cat, your dog. If you don't have a dog, your car. Whatever it is that was on that top three list. Let's just say God decided to take that away. How would you fare? How would you fare? Be honest. I mean, just be t- brutally honest. You don't have to answer to me. Be brutally honest to yourself. Like, how would you fare? And I know that's an incredibly painful thought and arguably at the extreme end of the spectrum of faith testing. But isn't that what we just read that Job had to go through? And he had ten. Isn't it? Yeah. And for the record, Job, again, didn't just lose one child. He lost all of them at once. And what was the response of the blameless and upright one, the one who walked the walk? the one who lived righteously, the one who was a doer of the word. Up here on the board, Job 121b-22, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Incredible, right? So what was Job's big secret? He trusted God, no matter what. He trusted God, no matter what. He listened to God, 
no matter what. No matter what. Can you say that? Can you say that you trust God no matter what? That you listen to Him no matter what? Can you say that? Because that's the way of the blameless and upright one. That's the way of righteousness. Can you say that you accept the life that God has ordained for you? Can you say that you accept the life that God has ordained for you? Or are you a whiner that lives in misery because all you ever do is look for ways in which you receive God's grace? And maybe in the dark recesses of your soul, you think you have the right to demand blessings from God? If you're honest, maybe I hit a nerve. I bet I did. You know why? Because we all do it. Deep down, we all have this expectation from God that is literally unholy. We all suffer from a little thing called entitlement. Don't we? Oh, I'm the only one, huh? Do you or don't you? Are you entitled? One person. Are you entitled? No. Don says no. Would you like to explain? Are you getting my you getting my question? I don't think you are. Maybe maybe Monica can explain it to you during a leadership meeting. We're all a little entitled. We think we deserve what we get. We think we can demand it from God. We cannot. You are not entitled to any blessing that's not specifically stated as permanent in the Bible. Does that help? Good. Do we ever get loose? You bet. We all do it. That is the point. In my notes, I have, ouch. Because it hurts a little bit. What the Word of God is teaching us is that you're whining in your misery is because you have poor perspective. With the righteous perspective, you are delivered. With righteous living, this deliverance manifests in your daily walk. The lesson here is to learn to give instead of just receive. Love the way Jesus loved and be prepared to have your socks blown off. That's the message here this morning. Perspective. That is it. So let's close with Jesus' words just for a little bit more practical guidance. Go to Luke 6.31. Luke 6.31. Luke 
and we'll close. Verse 31, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. That's the golden rule, right? So-called golden rule. Of course, it's a ripoff. We learned that thing in like grade school. No one tells you it's a ripoff from the Bible. Any true wisdom is a ripoff from the Bible. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. Nothing in return. This isn't, you're not looking for ROI. You're not looking for a return on investment. You give because you're grace-oriented. Because you know that's what God wants. That's what's pleasing to the Lord. And it's also good for you. Love your enemies. Do good. Lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap, for with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. Don't worry about it. You focus on giving. I will take care of the rest, so says the giver of grace. So this is the beauty of the other side of grace that we've been studying. This is why uh, this recurring principle keeps coming up in our messages, and I'll close. Being in love. This is where he's trying to direct us as a congregation, as individuals. He wants us there, in that place, where our joy will be made full, where righteousness abounds, where practical righteousness exists, not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. There is no better place to be for you or for others than abiding in the sphere of of God's love. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for giving us the truth that sets us free, Father. Thank you for always making it real. Father, we just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to the privacy of our own souls, our homes, and then your will be done out to a world that needs it so desperately. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.